Welcome to A Handful of Hope, where we bring you heart-to-heart conversations with heart-centered people. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of A Handful of Hope. I am so happy and grateful to have Donald Skip Mondragon, MD, with us here today, who has practiced internal medicine, adult medicine for over 30 years. Skip is a 26-year Army veteran, spent 30 months in combat zones, and is a national veterans wrestling champion. During his last year in the Army, Skip became a casualty of depression. As he recovered, he was called to help men struggling with his dark disease by speaking and writing. His book, Wrestling Depression is Not for Wimps, was published in February of 2020. Skip's true claim to fame are his five independent and gainfully employed children, his four amazing grandchildren, and especially his wife, Sherry. She's a tough army wife who endured raising teenagers on her own, a variety of moves to new duty stations, and far too many of his idiosyncrasies for over 39 (laughs) years of marriage. Skip, welcome, and thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Jesse. I'm delighted to be here. And just one thing, my wife and I just celebrated our 40th wedding anniversary. Congratulations. I think there's going to be a, a bio update needed for you. That's I, I think. I, I didn't catch that. It's like, oh my gosh, I need to go back and update that. So you, you put it in the bio. It's out there. We got to ask, what are the top two or three idiosyncrasies that your wife has ah. to entertain? <laughs> My idiosyncrasies, well, one of them is I'm kind of fastidious about some things. I, I like some uh, certain things done uh, certain ways. Uh, I'm very meticulous about my clothes, for instance. I like my shirts ironed, and my wife is very accommodating. Now, I know how to iron. My little grandma, my abuelita, she taught me how to iron probably before I was age seven, as I recall. I remember sitting, standing on a chair and my grandma behind me showing me how to iron a shirt. She taught me how to sew on a button. She taught me how, showed me how to cook and, and other things. So when I was very young, so I know how to iron. I know how to iron well. But my sweetheart has done that for me over the course of our marriage. Other than my BDUs, when we had to iron those, I would iron and starch my own battle dress uniform in the army. So she irons my shirts. Uh, the, the other thing is, you know, that I, I can't stand clothes strewn around. Uh, you know, my kids used to do that. Oh, just drive me nuts. And shoes. I can remember uh, we have five children, as you mentioned there. So when they were young, I used to tell them, pick up your shoes before you go to bed. And I'd see all these shoes in the living room and I'd pick up your shoes before you get them. Pick up your shoes and take them to your room and put them away. So I finally said, all right, I'm not going to tell you anymore. But if you haven't picked up your shoes before you go to bed, I'm confiscating those shoes when I go to bed. Mm. And you're going to do an extra chore to get your shoes back. (laughs) And it worked very well. Now, my daughter, who had more shoes and her brothers kept doing that. Shoes, all her shoes, all her flip-flops, everything ended up in our closet. (laughs) She ended up having to borrow a pair of flip-flops from her younger brother, Jonathan, 
So she had something to wear when she went to gymnastics practice. <laughs> so we laugh about that now, but I just got tired of telling kids, pick up your things. I don't want it. There's another little thing there. I like uh, to put the cord a certain direction uh, when we have it plugged in on the toaster. Now, Sherry's a lefty. Uh, and so I like it a certain direction. Now, if I plug it in that way, Sherry doesn't like it and she'll turn it around. And I come into the kitchen and I don't like it. <laughs> and, and I want to turn it just like, oh, but uh, if she's plugging it in already, it's like, all right, I'm not, I'm not going to touch that. <laughs> I love it. So those are a few, uh, you know, dads, uh, you know, they, they, the kids know. There was one other I'll share with you. When the kids were young and they'd set the table uh, uh, and the forks they put, I didn't like a small fork at my set, uh, uh, where I sat. I wanted the longer fork. And I'd get perturbed with that. Why are you giving me the baby fork? I don't like this little fork. <laughs> and so... Then they would purposely do it just, just to see me. Come on now, you know, why do I have the baby fork? <laughs> and they tease me about that to this day. Skip, since you've shared so honestly, I'll, I'll acknowledge too, I share some of the same idiosyncrasies. Mm. I have huge hands, can't stand baby forks. I am at the point of policing my closet so much that I have everything not only in order, but it's ordered by color because I was reading the reading research on the science of decision-making and decision fatigue. And I thought, why do I want to take all this time and make these extra efforts trying to find a green shirt right. where it should just be, you know, black, white, green, red, yellow, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And I also sure. have every single thing is in the same specific spot. And I do that because then even if two years goes by and I don't, I need it all of a sudden, I know exactly where it is. Mm. it's it's always has a spot it always goes there so i can just remember where things end up and i'm i, I am almost on the borderline of militant now if anybody comes over and they start moving stuff around or no, they start... don't do that yeah i won't be able to find it yeah so skip 26 years in the army thank you so much first of all for your service you're welcome I, i'm i'm really curious how how is the army how, from your perception, how has it changed over that 26 years? You know, did you notice any noticeable changes from when you entered in to when you, you retired from it? How did it change? Well, I think one of the things that changed was this uh, notion of individuals coming in and thinking, uh, I, I need a safe pace. I need a, a place um, where I'm not feeling threatened during training, for instance, and so forth. Listen, when you raise your hand to say, I, I swear to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and so forth. Now, you do that as an officer, and, and one of the things you do as an enlisted and to obey you know, the commands of my senior, you know, my senior officers. And so you get these uh, trainees now in more recent years who aren't being told, this is what you're going to do. This is when you're going to do it. This is how you're going to do it. Mm -hmm. 
no questions asked. Well, I'm feeling threatened. You know, I'm feeling, uh, gee, Sergeant, you shouldn't be talking. Listen, your life may depend on this. You have to learn how to take orders. End of line. Because in a combat situation, your life may depend on that. And so some of these younger people don't understand that. And so I, I saw this just due to changes in our society that some recruits were basically too soft, hmm. both physically and emotionally. Uh, that, that was one of the things that I saw. That, that's, I appreciate you sharing that. And that's fascinating that that has spilled over now into to the armed forces because, you know, that seems like as an outsider and I've never been in the service. I have one of my best friends, as I shared with you before, he's been in the service since we graduated high school. I have several other friends who have been in the right. service. He's actually stationed currently where you were stationed in Fort Hood. And mm -hmm. it's, it's been such a curious thing as an outside observer seeing how some of the societal things that are coming up right now and how that starts to spill into the, the service when you're, you're going into their understanding that you're going into a, a, an entity where it very much comes, can come down to life and death. Right. And when you're, if you were to find yourself in combat and, and you can attest to this better than anybody having been deployed in combat for as many times as you were for as long as you were, uh, you, you can't call time out, right? When the enemy, when the enemy's attacking, you can't get out there and say, Hey, time out. I need, I need a five minutes just to collect my thoughts or, Hey, Hey, excuse me, sir. Can you, can you stop shooting at me and stop trying to kill me? I just need to gather myself yet. That is some of the challenges that are coming in. It's, and it's, and I'm really curious how you, how you approach this skip because you're recognizing it's coming in. And then you're working now to support men afterwards who are struggling with some of the mental and emotional mm -hmm. challenges. And, and I guess, you know, the question is, is where do we find that line or where do we find that balance with it too, where we want to be sensitive as a society and, and opening the doors and having these conversations. But then also when you're going into an entity like the United States military, where it literally is not only your life on the line, but it could be the lives of your, your fellow soldiers, your, yes. your, your squad mates, right. everything. How, how do we begin to toe that line? Well, I think first it's expectations. So when individuals are going in and speaking to a recruiter, I think it's behooves that recruiter being very honest. This is what you're getting into. And then it's the expectation of that recruit going in, understanding what they're getting into. So I think it starts with expectations. And then I think it's understanding the bigger picture, having that understanding. I no longer belong to me. When you enter the service, guess what? You belong to Uncle Sam. <laughs> And I would tell these uh, younger soldiers, if Uncle Sam offers you something, advanced schooling, the ability to go to college, et cetera, you take that opportunity and run with it because he is going to exact 
his pound of flesh and then some. Mm. And that's the truth. So it, it's, it's expectations. It's understanding that bigger picture that we are part of this bigger entity that's so much bigger than we are. And that purpose of the armed forces to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies. This is a grave responsibility, but an incredible honor, hmm. what we get to do. And we're a little piece in that cog, but an important piece. And if we don't do our part, then things are going to begin to break down. So we have a part in that. And as a physician in a combat zone, you would have a mass kill. And when that's going on, you don't, as you said, you don't necessarily have time to say, okay, let's take five. Because you have to take care of those casualties until everybody has been properly triaged, properly treated. And then you can say, all right, now let's take a break. You don't have the luxury. And then when you see soldiers that are horribly maimed, soldiers that die, or in some cases when you're taking care of combatants right next to your soldiers and you have these young medics saying, well, why are we treating this combatant before we treat our own? And you're having to explain to them because that's how we triage them, who's most mm. severely wounded. And they can't understand that. And you're trying to tell them, this is what we do according to our doctrine, according to the Geneva Convention, according to our ethics. This is how we have to do things. Or when they first time see somebody die. So you're having to you know, deal with your own emotions, but now not only do that, but then comfort these young 18 to 22-year-olds who have never dealt with death ever and help them to get through this so it, it's a whole array of things that you contend with in that kind of situation I, gosh as you're as you're sharing i and i want to come back to something you just you just said but I, this just this sparked something in me that i haven't thought of in years I remember a friend of mine, he was, he went into the Marine Corps right after high school and he mm -hmm. did, gosh, I want to say he was deployed three times in the, the post 9-11 over into Iraq, Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And I asked him, I said, were you ever, and so I think in his four years of service, he was, I think, gosh, I want to say almost two and a half of those maybe were spent in combat zone, maybe even three. Wow. Wow. It's something like that. And I asked him, I said, were you ever scared? And he told me this story that I, I always remember, but I haven't thought of since you just shared. He said it was his third, it was his third deployment. And the base they were at started to get shelled at night. Mm. Everybody's asleep. He said, you know, the siren goes off, things are exploding. He said, oh, he yeah. jumps up, he's getting dressed. He's pulling his pants on, pulling his shirt on. He's not even thinking of anything. And then he looks over because he hears a noise and he sees some of the, the new soldiers and it's their first tour. They just got into the country. 
And there's some of them that are crying. There's some of them that are shaking. There's some of them that are you know, praying. And he said in that moment, he felt almost scared because he had realized he had spent so much time around it that he'd adapted and it had just become normal for him. He wasn't even having that response that those other ones were. He was just, it was, it was so, it was as natural as me getting up and getting dressed to go to the gym in the morning. Mm. And he said in that moment, he had just this brief instance where he paused and he said, wow, I, I have, I have adapted, I've assimilated to this. And it was, it was, it was something that he, he said, you know, I never thought I would, but I did. I want to come back to what you were saying about the, the triaging piece. And mm -hmm. when you and I had spoke a few, several weeks ago, you had said something to me that has stuck with me since you and I talked and I, and I'm going to, I'm going to mess up the phrasing. So please correct me, but you're talking about soldiers being compassionate. Was it compassionate warriors or compassionate war fighters? Yeah, compassionate war fighters. And I thought, my God, that is such a powerful, powerful mm. image to consider because unfortunately, you know, the public, we see only what's going to make it publishable on TV. And that's usually mm. the chaos and the violence. Mm -hmm. And it's a and it's a 30-second clip of a complex situation that we can't even begin to fathom right. with and even in the complexities, that's not even considering human emotion. And you had shared these stories about instances of commanding officers coming in and comforting soldiers who had been injured or who were, who were dying. And it was the compassionate warfighters. And I was thinking, my goodness, there's this whole other side of the uh, public perception mm -hmm. of the military that I think unless you have some sort of connection directly to the military, you would never even pause to consider. And right. we're, we're, we're left with just what we see on TV and in the movies. Right, right. And the gist of it was that I had learned be working closely with, at that time, Major General, two-star general, uh, he was a two-star at that time, Petraeus, who was commander of the 101st Airborne Division, air assault up in Mosul in the northern sector of Iraq. And his assistant division commanders and brigade commanders, seeing that they were, at the end of the day, because I think of physicians, chaplains, social workers, nurses, those of us as caretakers. But what I saw in working with them, that at the end of the day, they were also caretakers, taking hmm. care of their soldiers. That's, yeah, they were prosecuting the war, but at the end of the day, they were also caretakers. And it hurt them so deeply. Just you could see it, you could feel it when you had to go out and tell them your soldier didn't make it, or to see how how it pained them to see their soldier or soldiers in some cases in the ICU after life-saving surgery or after losing limbs. And so it it was an eye-opening experience for me. Skip, you, thank you for sharing that. And you had, so you're, you're nearing the end of your service. It's the final year. And you start to experience, feel depression. Was it something, 
So what brought that on for you? Was it something that you'd been aware of before? Was it, was it ever present before? Was it a, a, a byproduct of experiences? Can you talk to us a little bit about that? It was, it was a perfect storm. Certainly traumas from the past, but you know, I'm a very resilient person and I'm this tough guy. So you talked about some of the things. I'm a national wrestling champion, national veterans wrestling champion, had been in the war zones. Uh, you know, there was trauma from younger years. I was bullied as a kid, et cetera. But there was that background. And there was this perfect storm that was brewing. We were preparing to retire from the Army. All we had known in our professional life, except for a residency, had been Army life. Looking to sell our home, move to Texas, find a new job, get a Texas State medical license, all those uncertainties. And then you couple that with, uh, there were some problems going on in my department at that time in the, cath the cardiac catheterization lab and the dialysis unit. Things that happened there that were going to impact graduate medical education, teaching our residents and vi visiting residents and medical students that I couldn't have foreseen and things that I couldn't have done anything about that were going to impact graduate medical and patient care. And I took personally, and I began to just think on that and ruminate on that. Just thinking, oh my gosh, this is horrible. Mm. What could I have done? Why couldn't I do this? I should have, you know, blaming myself and there's nothing I could have done about it. So that was going on. And then uh, my sleep, I started having problems with the insomnia, started up, started falling asleep for an hour, then it became two hours, and then three hours. This got progressively worse. I had three surgeries in seven months time, starting in then September of 2013. And with each of those surgeries, it took me out of my normal routine, intense exercise, impacted my diet and further made my sleep worse. And all the time my mood is getting more blue. When we talk about depression and the blue mood, it's not just feeling down and discouraged. It is like a dark, heavy, palpable cloud descends upon you that joy is just sucked out of your life. And you're walking through life in black and white. It got to the point where I felt like I was in this deep, dark pit with my head confused and slogging through a foot of mud. Mm. I lost passion for things I was normally interested in, especially wrestling, coaching the boys that would coach, watching wrestling, I had no interest in it. I became withdrawn, lost my confidences, started waning, decision-making was impaired. I became very tentative. I began to withdraw from normal activities and being with others. I just didn't have the emotional energy. So all of these things were happening in a progressive fashion as the months progressed through from the summer of 2013 from approximately June on until the point where, and the other thing was my cognition was off. I was having trouble remembering things. Did I just read five minutes ago? What was the name of that medicine? Oh, what's the name of that medical syndrome? So you're talking with a patient 
or talking with a resident and you're feeling like adult. What, what, what was that? What was that? Uh, I thought I was suffering from early onset dementia. I called mm. the chief of behavioral health and asked to be assessed because I thought I was becoming demented. And they tested me. Thankfully, that wasn't the case attributed to anxiety about retiring and the insomnia I was experiencing. And, and so that was going on. So all of these things, it was all this perfect storm of things and then culminated in April on April 17th, 2014. Again, this horrible insomnia got to the point where I would long for one to two hours of restful sleep. That's how horrible that insomnia was. That I got up that morning, usually I got up between five and 5.15, had dressed, quick shaved, dressed quickly, had short devotions, my wife would fix breakfast for me, and then she handed me my, my lunch and my thermos of coffee. We had a nice long smooch. I prayed for her. She prayed for me, and I was out the door to go to Port Gordon uh, in Georgia to Eisenhower and Medical Center. I always liked to get there early. didn't want to fight the traffic. So I get on the floor, walk in. Headed to my office. That's typically the first one, even on the floor, that there was nobody else there. Put my lunch away. Unlock the office. Put my lunch away. Turn on all the lights. And everything was normal. All was normal as it could be, you know, over those many months. Until after I locked, unlocked my office door and stepped in. And then turned off the lights, locked the door, shut the blinds, and turned off all my phones. And then I curled up under my desk in a fetal position. And for four hours, I was asking myself, Skip, what are you doing? Skip, how did you get here? What happened? I'm thinking, I'm a tough guy. I'm a wrestler. I'm a national wrestling champion. I've been in war zones. I've been in those combat zones 30 months. I'm resilient. I've withstood a lot of things. What happened? And then I'm slowly beginning to put the pieces together, the insomnia, the mood, the withdrawal guilt, the shame, because see, the other thing I was having is these horrible negative thoughts that would just batter me day and night. You're a fake. You don't deserve to be a colonel. You've let your family down. You've let the army down. You've let your department down. Who's going to want to hire you? And those thoughts would just pound, pound, pound. And of course, when are they at their worst? At nighttime, when you're laying in bed, your wife's sound asleep. You know, Sherry would be sound asleep, and I'd be laying there bug-eyed all the distractions of the day gone. And then those thoughts would be at their worst. And so all of this had been, you know, I'd been struggling with. And it was, it was like I was contending with this 250-pound behemoth. It had me on my back, and I could not get 
back up because I had this mentality as a wrestler, as a tough guy, push through, get through. I just got to work harder because that's what wrestlers do. That's what tough guys do. You call it in, in wrestling, gut it out. No matter how much you're hurting, no matter how much those lungs burn, no matter how much your muscles ache, and how much your mind is saying quit, you just keep pushing through. You just keep working hard. You don't give up. And that was my mentality. And it had served me well through the course of my life. But those, that compensation for that now failed. I could not function anymore. And so I finally began to put it together. And after four hours, I could see what was going on. It was like, oh, Skip, you're depressed. Go get help. And that's the day I went to get help. You know, I, as you're sh sharing that story, I'm imagining what you're sharing this, this guy who spent 30 months in combat zones, who's seen some of the most challenging and difficult moments in his humanity, who's a national wrestling champion, who's a tough guy, who survived and endured all these things. And it's, and it's one of those things that I think was so powerful about your story, Skip, is when you have that prototypical strong guy, who is at the mercy of his emotion in that moment, to me, it's, it's, it gives me pause that to consider that if he can feel that way, I can honor when I feel that way too. And I think that's such an important piece because I think that so many of us we don't pause and we don't honor what we're feeling. We try to stuff and we try to push and we try to power through. We try to overcome. We try to ignore and pretend and make believe. And then eventually we arrive at a point where we are in the fetal position under our proverbial desk. Sure. And I, and I, and I appreciate, so that's, I appreciate that story so much because it just, it really gives us all the opportunity mm -hmm. to ask the question of, you know, do we need a pause? Is there something heavy that we're carrying around that we need to start addressing? Is there, has there been things that we're trying to push through that we need to slow mm -hmm. down and get some help and support with it? Sure. Right. You, you had mentioned to me before we came on skip about prevention always trumps rehab. And I'm wondering now with, I want, I want to talk about this, but I also want to apply it in context to what you just shared. So having the gift of hindsight now, sure. are there times that you could, when you look back and think, I could have done this as a preventative measure and, or I could have done these things as preventative measures, understanding what you know now about the whole journey that would have maybe helped you avoid that under the desk moment. Well, one would have been as my sleep got worse to go and seek more help. And I was working with a psychologist at least part of the time, but I didn't continue to work with her as after the summer. So we had worked, I had asked for help in terms of the insomnia and we worked for a few months. I think it was June, July, maybe August, but I didn't continue working with her. So that would have been one. 
The other was, uh, as my mood began to descend, would be able to step back and say, what's going on here? Why are these negative thoughts battering me? And as I began to lose confidence and become indecisive, what's wrong with this? That's not me. Why, why am I experiencing this? And then as these negative thoughts, you add to that battering me. Again, what's going on? I deserve to be chief of my department. I haven't let my department down. I haven't let my family down. I haven't let the army down. Why, why, why am I allowing, what, what's going on? So having enough insight to step back as I'm beginning to experience these, say, there's a problem here. <laughs> this isn't real. This isn't right. Something is wrong and seeking help. And we had talked a little bit about this, a recent episode that I had uh, several weeks ago going in and coaching the kids in wrestling. You know, foolishly, I hadn't been on the mats for a couple of years, wasn't in, hadn't been training intensively. And one of the coaches, oh, there's only two in this group and the other groups have three. You want to scrimmage with these kids? I thought, okay, I'll scrimmage with them, practicing takedowns. And I, I decided to go and within minutes, <gasps> you know, I'm sucking wind. And one of the kids snaps me down to my hands and knees. And before I could react, he slaps a cradle on me, you know, one arm around my head and neck and the other around my leg and go. Bam! And as soon as he, he did that, I felt in my acromioclavicular, my AC joint here uh, on my right side here, I just felt this boom. It was like, oh, I know what happened. He just, you know, had a little separation there. And I've had several in both shoulders with wrestling. So I knew as so, yeah. foolishly after that, I get back up and keep rotating in with him for several more minutes before I finally say, oh, enough. I was just so fatigued at that point. It's like, enough, enough. And sure enough, that night, oh, painful. I had ice on it, ice on it. And I couldn't lie on my right shoulder. I mean, couldn't lie on that, lie on that right shoulder for a few months. Couldn't do push-ups. Couldn't do my chin-ups. <laughs> couldn't do certain activities because of the pain. Because my ego, you know, prevention trumps rehab. See, the prevention would have been being wise. <laughs> the coach asked, you want a scrimmage? No, thank you. I haven't been on the mats in two years. I haven't been exercising intensively. I'll demonstrate to the kids, but I am not going to scrimmage with the kids. That would have been the prevention. Instead, guess what? <laughs> I'm rehabbing because of my foolishness. Mm. And so it's, it's the ability to step back and say, are certain reserves, be it mental, emotional, relational, physical, are these reserves ebbing? Are they being worn down and you're not finding ways to replenish these? And, and I think that's one of the keys is to find ways to monitor that and, and, and that takes a, the ability to step back, to quiet yourself, and to reflect. And in our noisy world, especially our digital world, with this computer, if you will, that we have at our disposal and typically on our person, 
throughout the day are cell phones, what I call it the tyranny of dings, pings, and rings that we may not quiet ourselves enough to relax or we're on our computers. I spend a lot of time on the computer studying and reading and writing. So that's the other thing. Or binging on Netflix. Hey, yeah, I can I can get lost in a series and sure I can spend a few hours a day watching this series. <laughs> but the tyranny of those things and not just quieting myself to reflect. Where am I right now? How are my relationships? How am I feeling and doing physically? How is my spiritual life going? How am I doing emotionally? And assessing those and saying, well, if I'm not doing well in one of those areas, what do I need to be doing to help replenish that? Prevention always trumps rehab. Skip, we're coming up on our time. Before I ask my final question, where's the best places for people to find and connect with you online? The best places, you can start with my uh, Facebook and Twitter, at Skip, S-K-I-P-W-N-W, or on the website, wrestling, www, wrestlingisnotforwimps.com. You can find my book on Amazon, most easily wrestling is not for wimps Re or rather wrestling depression is not for wimps thank you for that uh, skipping that for the last minute or two we have here you and your wife have been together for over 40 years and i'm curious have you evolved going through this journey with depression have you evolved and, and how you communicate her with her about it and ask, and have you evolved and how you involve her in supporting you with it. And I ask that because I think that one of the stigmatisms out there is suffering in silence, right? And, and oftentimes we hide stuff from the people that we're the closest to. We, we, we try to pretend to the people that we're the closest to. And I think that there's, it's worth bearing mention just for people listening about how you maybe approached or engaged in a dialogue with your wife before and in, in time since, if, if it's evolved or changed. So it might give people some guidance and how they can, they can engage in dialogue with their, their spouses, their family members, their friends about what they may be going through. I think being able to identify when there's a dramatic change now, depression can be insidious, in, in other words, slowly progressive. And uh, again, with that tough guy mentality, just keep pushing through it. Uh, Sherry, yeah, I was in denial. And so there were a lot of things Sherry didn't understand that I was struggling with. And I wasn't being forthright. I, I wasn't in touch with <laughs> what was going on. I'm just struggling with this, so I got to be pushing through and I wasn't seeing the full picture so being able to recognize you know sleep you know that disturbance in sleep that disturbance in mood being withdrawn gee dad isn't wanting to participate in things 
they're not wanting to do things. They're not passionate about the things that they're there. They don't have interest in that. We call that in medical terms, anhedonia. So you think of the hedonistic lifestyle, you know, just following whatever passion, you know, those passions, just following that anhedonia, lose passion in the things you're interested in. Um, so the mood, the loss of passions, the withdrawal, disruptions in sleep, it can be again, the cognition, confusion, not remembering things. And in men, uh, as opposed to women, there's some things there that men may have more irritability and may be more aggressive or do things that are risk-taking, that's out of the ordinary. So they may start taking risks, maybe driving too fast, maybe gambling, doing some other behaviors that are out of the ordinary for them. So again, risk-taking behaviors, aggressive behaviors, um, irritability, these can be hallmarks in men that they may be depressed. So again, things that are out of the ordinary that you can't please. But if you see a, you know, three, four or more of these symptoms in them, you may want to say, hey, maybe they're depressed. And you may want to say, I'm concerned about you. I'm very concerned. Would you consider getting evaluated? I love you and I'm concerned. Would you consider going and being evaluated? That would be one thing. So with Sherry and I, she knows that, yeah, I may once again go down the drain. I've had episodes that have been short-lived where I've been down, nothing to the extent I still take medications. I'm seeing a therapist. I see a few times a year, approximately every three months or so, I see my psychiatrist. So I'm still under therapy. I still receive treatment to keep me on an even kill. And I've given permission for my therapist and my psychiatrist to talk with my wife. And I've told Sherry, I've said, honey, I need your feedback. If you're seeing things in me that you're concerned about, I need you to talk to me. And if, if need be, you need to talk with my providers about what you're seeing. So we have that dialogue. I had an episode back shortly after our, it was after Memorial Day and it was a few days after our 40th uh, anniversary. And I just felt horrible that day. Yeah, I hadn't felt that, that poorly in a long, long time. It was just, it was a rough day. It was a, it was a very bad day. And that was a day that normally I would attend a Toastmasters meeting with a club that I previously coached. And Sherry said, are you going to attend Fiesta Bilingual? And I said, honey, I, I, I just feel horrible. I, I'm really feeling down. I don't have the energy to attend. I, I just don't. I knew that I was going to feel better, whether next day or in a few days. But that day was a horrible day for me. And the next day, I woke up and I felt substantially better. <laughs> But it just was one of those days. And I hadn't had a day like that in I don't know how long. So 
I had given her permission. And so we communicate about those things. She watches me and we talk about it. And again, I've given her permission to dialogue with my providers. And likewise for them, if need be, to ask her, I've said, if you want to talk with my wife <laughs> and need to corroborate things with her, please do so. So I've given them permission likewise. Very good. Thank you for sharing that, Skip. Everyone, boy, did Skip take us on a journey today talking about his service in the military and looking at the changes he's seen over 26 years about the challenges that new soldiers are coming in with and struggling with managing their own emotions and challenging and difficult circumstances and how to balance that line between expectations and telling the truth at the very beginning of what they're getting into. So that way soldiers can have the clear expectations of what they're getting into and having that with that dialogue of being open with recruiters and then going into, going into combat serving 30 months in a combat zone and really having this awareness that soldiers are these compassionate, you know, compassionate fighters that they're going out there and while they're doing these, these challenging or difficult things, things that most of us can't even imagine for something that they believe so strongly in to ultimately provide and protect freedoms that we all enjoy. Yes. That what we never see when the cameras are, aren't rolling is we never see the care and compassion that they have for one another, for those who have six, those who have been injured and those who are dying or who have passed, even if those soldiers aren't necessarily their own troops because they operate under a code of ethics that gives them the responsibility to care for all, all those who can't care for themselves. And I think that's just such an incredible thing in it. And it makes me wonder what would our society as a whole be like if we, had, we held ourselves to such a high standard that we extended care and mm -hmm. compassion to those who we may not know, those who may not be like us and those who we may not understand. What would it happen if we met words of anger with words of love? What would it happen mm. if we met aggression with compassion? And would it change overnight? Probably not, but I think it would, it would move mountains towards change over time. And then from there, we shifted gears and we started talking about depression. Skip told the story. As a fellow Toastmaster, I want to acknowledge Skip's storytelling skills. I was in the hospital with him as he crawled under his desk, turned the lights off and shut the blinds. I could feel it there. And those of us who have struggled with, with challenging and difficult times, who have struggled with our emotional states, whether it's been full on depressive episodes or something else, we can all relate to that moment of, of closing the blinds, shutting everything out, turning off the phone, and just being with ourselves because it feels like that's all we have the capacity to do. I appreciate Skip's transparency so much because I think it gives us all pause of the power of our own humility. He had mentioned a couple of times in looking at the preparation or prevention Trump's rehab of looking back and, and what it would have been like if there would have been dialogues and asking for help and seeking help right away. And he mentioned his ego getting in the way when he got in the wrestling match with the kids. And as he was sharing that, I thought, my gosh, could humility be a superpower? You know, could humility be a superpower for humans? And humility being, what if we just if it was valued more about us being tough and resilient, if it was, val if it was valued higher of us being honest and, and integrity with where we are and how we feel. You know, integrity is a funny term sometimes where we like to throw it around and we like integrity to be in alignment with our actions to others, but very rarely are we integrous with ourselves and our actions to self. And I think many of us get in these places of suffering and struggling because we live so many little lies with ourselves. And we find ourselves so far out of integrity with ourselves that, and that's to no one's fault. Many of us aren't taught this. I think, especially as men, 
it's rarely talked about and discussed because we're supposed to be tough. We're supposed to suck it up. And especially you add in the layers of being a, 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 a soldier, a wrestling champion, you know, the whole world is about being tough and winning and winning and pushing and pushing and conquering. And then we concluded with having those conversations with those who are closest to us about how do we enter into them and talk when we're struggling? How do we engage in conversations with our loved ones and let them know and be able to lean on to them for support rather than push them away? Yes. Skip, this has been such an incredible time with you. I deeply appreciate what you're doing. And I'm so grateful that you've embarked in this new chapter of your life. And it has been a, an absolute honor and privilege to connect with you, get to know you. Again, I'm deeply grateful for your service to this country and how you are showing up to serve and support others on their journey out of the dark into the light. Thank you so much, Skip, for being here today. Thank you, Jesse. It's been my pleasure. Absolutely. We will see you next time, everyone, on another edition of A Handful of Hope. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you're finding value in these conversations, please rate and review on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever your favorite place is to listen to